Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And once again, we're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, always a lot going on, but it looks like we're back to the basics today, and uh, you're going to be talking about uh, one of the Ten Commandments. Yes, we're going to talk about the commandments, thou shalt not steal. And we might apply this to President Putin right now, thou shalt not steal other people's countries. By the way, I'm in the Montgomery Corral, and at this Sunday's concert, we're going to be singing the Ukrainian national anthem in Ukrainian. And that was just decided last night, so I've got some work to do. But today we're going to look at the commandment, Thou shalt not steal, which we find in Exodus 20, 15. And in this commandment, we see a protection for human rights. In fact, much of the commandments deal with protecting human rights. Thou shalt not kill protects the right to life. Thou shalt not commit adultery protects your family. Thou shalt not steal protects your property. And yes, there are some who would probably try to argue that, well, it could just mean you don't steal from the state or you don't steal from the commune. But would you tie that in with the last commandment, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ass or his ox or anything that is thy neighbor's. Clearly, we are talking about private property here. Ellicott, in his commentary for English readers, explains the commandment in this way. He says, Thou shalt not steal. Our third duty towards our neighbor is to respect his right to his property. The framers of utopias, both ancient and modern, have imagined communities in which private property should not exist. But such a condition of things has never yet been realized in practice. In the laws of all known states, private property has been recognized, and social order has been, in a great measure, based upon it. Here again, law has but embodied natural instinct. The savage savage, who hammers out a flint knife by repeated blows with a pebble, laboring long and undergoing pain in the process, feels that the implement which he has made is his own and that his right to it is indisputable. If he is deprived of it by force or fraud, he is wronged. The Eighth Commandment forbids this wrong and requires us to respect the property of others no less than their person and their domestic peace and honor. Property rights involve a lot more than just the old saying, whoever ends up with the most toys wins. It is far more than just what Karl Marx described as being simply an obsession with material things. In fact, if anyone was obsessed with materialism, it was Karl Marx who made the class struggle the basic explanation of all history and the supposedly equal distribution of goods, which never was realized in any communist society, but made that the ultimate goal. They were good at depriving other people of their property, but not very good about making sure that it was then equally distributed. But property rights involve much more than this. Property rights, for one thing, are a matter of identity. That is, they are an extension of your person. 
if I were to go through your house, outside and even more inside, I would get an idea of who you are. I'd look at your bookshelves. I'd see what kind of pictures you put on your wall. I'd look at what kind of house you desire to have. I'd look at what kind of car you drive. I'd look at the clothes you wear. And all these things would tell me something about you as a person. In other words, property is an extension of the person. It is a form by which we express our identity. Private property is also a matter of productivity. We own computers, we own vehicles, we own tools in order to be productive. Productive in getting things done for ourselves, but also we use these things to make a living. Some people use physical tools. A man who has a workshop, for example, maybe he produces wooden goods or furniture or other things like that. A man who has a computer or it used to be a typewriter, if he were a writer, he would use that to pursue his living. And so property rights and property itself are a means of productivity. Private property is assumed in the Bible. We see it explicitly set forth here in the commandment and against in, in other prohibitions and punishments that are imposed in the scripture for theft. But we see people buying and selling goods. We see Abraham buying and selling land with others. We see Lydia in the New Testament, who is a seller of purple, meaning a seller of high-quality cloth and so on. And so the idea that people own property, that people buy and sell property, that is a matter of, of just the way things are assumed to be in the Bible. And thinking of an example of Naboth and his vineyard. Now, Ahab was certainly an apostate king at the very least, but he was married to one who was possibly the wickedest woman in the entire Bible, Jezebel, although her daughter Athaliah would give her a good competition for that title. But Jezebel was a Phoenician princess, and she was used to the Phoenician system in which princes were absolute, government had absolute authority, and so on. And you recall when Ahab sees this vineyard that is owned by Naboth, and he wants to buy that vineyard. And Naboth says, no, not for sale at any price. This came to me from my ancestors. I plan to pass it on to my descendants. I'm sorry, your majesty, but I don't wish to sell. And Ahab was very depressed about this. But at least Ahab understood Jewish law enough to know that if Naboth didn't want to sell his vineyard, he didn't have to. But Jezebel comes in, sees him depressed, and that's what's the matter, and Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. I said, well, what's the matter with you? What kind of no Phoenician prince would ever allow some little peasant to deprive him of a vineyard? I'll get that vineyard for you Phoenician style. And so she has Naboth brought into the palace on false charges and executed and property forfeited. Here you go, my husband, here is your vineyard. And she and 
Ahab were both judged for this, and the judgment was a judgment of God of death. But the point is, private property is assumed in the Bible and in nearly every other society. Not only because property is a God-given right, but also because stealing often leads to violence. Leads to maybe the thief being killed, or maybe if the victim of the theft resists or catches the thief in the process, the victim is killed, and so stealing leads to violence. Now, you could even make the argument that all of the commandments in the Bible are really ultimately about stealing. Thou shalt have no other gods before me is stealing from God the honor that is due to him and him alone. Thou shalt not kill, deprive somebody of their life. And thou shalt not commit adultery, deprives the other party to the marriage of the marital fidelity to which he is entitled. Thou shalt not bear false witness or take the name of the Lord thy God in vain is robbing people of the truth to which they are entitled. So there's a sense in which really all of the commandments are about stealing. But when we read these commandments here, and we wonder, well, what really is involved in stealing? Well, we think about, I remember way back in the 1970s, there was a writer by the name of Robert Ringer. I wouldn't say Robert Ringer was necessarily writing from a Christian perspective, but he said a lot of things that made good common sense. And Ringer, well, one of his books was titled Winning Through Intimidation. Another was titled Looking Out for Number One. And he makes the interesting statement there that almost everyone is honest in his own eyes. When we come back from the break, we'll examine that statement and see what theft really is. to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again, we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and today we're talking about Thou Shalt Not Steal. Well, let's continue with this Robert Ringer that I was mentioning in the last segment and his books, Winning Through Intimidation or Looking Out for Number One. One common sense observation he makes there is that almost everyone is honest in his own eyes. Very few people, if you ask them, well, what kind of person are you? Oh, I'm dishonest. I'm a thief. I'm a crook. There are a few, of course, who that's how they make their living, but most people don't think of themselves in that way. And if you embezzle from the office a little bit, well, you justify that by saying that, well, they don't really pay me what I'm worth, and so I'm just really getting what I really ought to be entitled to. And somebody once said that a thief 
or one defendant, I guess before a court, supposedly said, and this is a cartoon, but he said, I don't really consider myself a thief, Your Honor. I'm just a person who wants what other people have. The judge asked him, well, with that kind of reasoning, why don't you run for public office? And that seems to be what government does, is take what other people have. But when we really look at this question of theft, the first thing we think of in theft is picking up something that doesn't belong to us and taking it and making it our own in some way that other people don't quite see happen. But there's other forms of theft beyond this. There's extortion, for example, where you may be putting force on somebody to give you some money that they don't want to give, or blackmail, where you're threatening to expose somebody, some secret sin that somebody has, if they don't pay you for it. Embezzling is a form of theft, and embezzling is where money is rightfully in your possession. Let's say that your employer has given you some money for you to take to the bank, so you rightfully have that money right now, but not to keep, to take to the bank, and you slip out a few hundred for yourself. But anyway, so embezzling is a form of theft. Most of us would recognize that, I think. Most of us, though, would probably not recognize that borrowing a book and then failing to return it, that's a form of theft. That borrowing a book and not returning it when it was promised to be returned, even though eventually you're going to return it, still you're depriving the owner of the use of it at a time when he might need it. And so that, too, is a form of theft. Under theft crimes, we have one that's titled receiving stolen property. If you didn't steal property, but you receive property from somebody else that had stolen it, that is a criminal offense. It's a lesser offense than theft, but it facilitates theft. And commonly, we will say in a statute like that that in order to be guilty of receiving stolen property, you had to either know the property was stolen or at least have good reason to believe it might be stolen. If you happened to buy this property innocently and had no idea that this was stolen property, then that would normally be a defense to receiving stolen property. Damaging somebody's property negligently and not paying for it is a form of theft. You're in a parking lot, you back into somebody's car and put a dent in the side of somebody's car. You look around, nobody's here. They won't find out. I can get away with this, I'll, I'll take off. I, I can't afford this, I'll, I'll take off. And you are depriving that person of the for, full value of his car by doing this. You are forcing that person to either drive a dented car or pay considerable funds for having his car repaired, that is a form of theft. Now, a couple areas here that we often don't really think about are when we are taking from a company, for example. Shoplifting is a form of stealing. And that should be pretty obvious to everybody, but some people don't seem to realize. For one thing, they think that all stores have plenty of money and you're not really stealing from anybody, you're just stealing from the store. Well, the store is owned by somebody. 
But in fact, that person is probably going to pass out or pass on his the costs of of shoplifting onto his customers as a whole. I have been told, and I'm not sure about the figure here, but I've been told that in some areas, shoplifting raises the price of goods in general about 5%. In other words, every time you spend a dollar at, let's say, Walmart or another store like this, you might figure five cents of that is going to reimburse the store for the people that commit shoplifting and get away with it. Well, there's other areas too. What about stealing from an insurance company? I recall I had an incident one time where I had accidentally hit a tree and it was a stupid mistake I made, but did some damage to my car. The tree seemed to survive just fine. But neighbor immediately came out of the house and she said, I'm willing to sign a statement saying that a deer jumped out in front of you. And I had to say, I can't do that. Now, this lady was a fine neighbor, a very good person. She was just trying to help. But it never occurred to her that by doing that, she would be enabling me to steal from the insurance company money that didn't belong to me. I was entitled to have the insurance company cover something if it was not my fault. But my coverage might be very different if it was my fault. Not only that, but if my insurance company pays out to me for damages improperly, that is going to raise the premiums for everybody else, every other customer of that insurance company. Either that, or it's going to cut down on the insurance company's profits and the shareholders and so on are going to receive less as a result. So shoplifting and defrauding insurance companies, that is a form of theft. You ever try to claim you're a senior citizen when maybe you're just a couple of years short of that? And as a result, getting a senior discount on something? That's a form of theft. Have you ever tried to pass your child off as being only 11 rather than 12? Because if she's under 12, you, you get, she gets in free or for half price. That's a form of theft. Have you ever been to a ski resort and decided to leave early? You gave somebody else your lift ticket. So that person doesn't have to pay for a lift ticket and gets the privileges of skiing, which he didn't pay for. That's a form of theft. Taking towels from a hotel is a form of theft. I always love the statement of Yogi Berra. I love some of his classic sayings, like if you come to a fork in the road, take it, and things like that. But one of my favorites of his is when he said that this is such a luxury hotel. The towels are so thick, I could hardly fit them into my suitcase. <laughs> anyway, a lot of people don't even think of that as being theft. No, there, there are some things that the hotel probably expects you to take. If you've used their pens, for example, rather than leaving those pens with 
germs and fingerprints on them, they probably think it's entirely okay for you to take the pen. And also, that's a little advertising for them as well. But I remember one time I was in San Antonio. And, well, I'll tell you about that after the break. But point of the matter is, you need to have an understanding on this as to what things you're allowed to take and what things you aren't. When I talk about the San Antonio situation in just a moment, I'll give you a very good solution. We are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as you were uh, relating some of the examples of ways people steal when it's uh, maybe not as clear. Uh, it reminded me of some great advice I came across once upon a time that said, just simply, never buy a TV from an out-of-breath guy on the street. <laughs> Seems legit. <laughs> you told me that just during the break here. and You said I could tell it, but I feel well, if I told that story, that I'd be stealing <laughs> from you, and we're talking about stealing, so I don't think I ought to do that. Well, I applaud your but, integrity. <laughs> anyway, there are a lot of other areas. What about the practice of tipping? Now, some people don't like the practice of tipping, and there are countries where tipping is frowned upon and just not expected at all, and where people would refuse tips. South Korea, for example, prices are a little high there, but tipping is something you just don't do. But here in America, the idea is that by having part of what a waitress is paid for her service depend on how well she serves you and how happy she makes you during the meal and attends to your needs and so on. That's a way of stimulating better service. And anyway, I would certainly say that refusing to tip in a restaurant or other facility where tipping is expected is a form of theft. You're not giving the employee the service to which that employee is due. I was telling you about that matter of taking the towels from the from the hotel and so on. One time I was in a hotel there in San Antonio, and anyway, they had a beautiful book in the room, and the book was about San Antonio and its attractions and some of its history and so on. I really liked that book and wanted to take it home as a souvenir, but that'd be theft. Anyway, so I went down to the front desk as I was checking out, and I showed them the book there, and I just asked them, how much would you sell this book for? They said, oh, just take that. Sometimes you're up front with people, and that's the best way to get the result that you want. And many times, as we say, honesty, honesty is always the best policy, but sometimes honesty is the way that works out best for you and getting you what you want as well. Not paying your bills on time is also a form of theft. Your business needs that money, and they need it. Maybe they can't pay their bills because you're not paying yours, and you're stealing interest from them when you're not able to take your check at the time it's due and put it in the bank. What about your relations with your employer? Calling in sick when in fact you're not sick? Or 
let's say, not getting the proper rest so that you are unable to perform 100% on the job, if you're just kind of slopping through the day because you're too tired, because you stayed up watching television all night, you are robbing your employer of the services to which your employer is entitled. That's a form of theft. Sometimes it's going to happen. Sometimes you just don't sleep and you have to come in and just do the best you can. But to deliberately do that is a form of theft. When the employer is demanding more work from the employee that the contract calls for, not paying extra for that, that's a form of theft of the employer from the employee. Not giving his, his paycheck on time, that's, in a sense, a form of theft because the employee may need that money to pay bills at any rate as being deprived of interest. I recall one employer I had one time that, that this was at a time when the banks normally stopped any, any time you deposited something in the bank after 2 p.m., it would be credited for the next day instead of for that day. Well, this employer would regularly release the paychecks at 2.30. That way, they got an extra, I don't know how many dollars of interest from everybody, and their employees received one day's less interest on the money that they deposited. I'm not going to say that was theft exactly, but what about, let's say, using the copy machine for making personal copies. Now, if you have an understanding with your employer that it's all right to do that, if your understanding with your employer is that if you need to take a few sheets of paper home or some paper clips home and things like that, if you understand each other that way, then that's not a problem. But if that's not part of the agreement, that's a form of theft. With my own employer, we kind of have an understanding that if I get my work done, and I do more than my share of the work, but if I get my work done, if I come in a little late, that's all right. If I, I'm probably going to stay a little late, too. If I'm taking personal calls while I'm here in the office, that's okay, because I'll be taking business calls at home and so on. But unless you have an understanding with, like that with your employer, if you are conducting all kinds of personal activities on the employer's time, if you're taking too long for the lunch break or the coffee break, if you're coming in late or leaving early, that's a form of theft. Copyright violations are a form of theft because you are claiming other people's ideas as your own. And when somebody has written a book or produced a song or something like that, the basic principle is that the labor is entitled to his hire. In other words, you are entitled to be paid for what you have done. And to take somebody else's work and claim that as your own is not only lying, but it is stealing from that person as well. And we have the law we call fair use exceptions. And under copyright law, which really is a whole different field of law, but under copyright law, there's what we call the fair use exception that you can take a quotation out of a book, give it proper attribution, this is where it came from, and so on, and quote it in that way, and 
to go through what the law says about fair use, part of it depends on how long the quote is, how long it is in proportion to the total work that you're quoting from, and whether by quoting from that you are maybe helping the author, like maybe by quoting from that you're going to cause people to go out and buy his book and so on. All of those are factors to be considered in what constitutes fair use, but again, copyright violations are a form of theft. Taking false deductions on your taxes is a form of theft. Not reporting income that you have in fact earned is a form of theft. We sometimes say there's a difference between tax evasion, which is illegal and wrong, and tax avoidance, which is okay. Tax avoidance means like investing money in your business and so on, and then deducting that as a business expense. The government wants you to be investing in your business and building your business. That's good for the economy, and so they encourage you to do that. That's tax avoidance, and that's fine. But failing to report income or claiming expenses that you didn't have, that is tax evasion, and that's false. The example I give sometimes is, let's say that I'm driving on a road, and I come to a toll bridge, and I don't really want to pay the toll to go over that bridge, but I need to get across the river. Now, there's two things I could do. I could either crash through the gate, and that would be tax evasion, and that is wrong. Or I can go upstream a few miles and cross on the free bridge, which is an inconvenience to me, but if I'm willing to put up with the inconvenience to save the buck or so of the toll, that's perfectly legal and perfectly fine. That's the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance. I would argue that we have a moral duty to take all available deductions, all reasonable deductions, and that's just good stewardship, to use your money for things that I'd rather see it used for than what the government might use it for. Tax avoidance is fine. Tax evasion is wrong. Well, what about bankruptcy? Bankruptcy is a way of getting out of debt in a way. But it is legal. Legal doesn't make it right. Sometimes, though, bankruptcy may be necessary as a last resort. If you are just in over your head, which sometimes can happen through no fault of your own or little fault of your own, unexpected medical expenses, things like that, maybe what you need is to clear the air and get a fresh start. I would still say, though, that once you've done that, once you're back on your feet, you should make an effort to go back and pay those debts even though they were discharged in bankruptcy. There's also what we call the wage earner plan of bankruptcy, which takes your debts and apportions them out so that you are paying them at a slower rate, but at least the people who you owe money to will get paid eventually. And that is better than just a straight bankruptcy, in my opinion. But anyway, bankruptcy is something to be avoided if at all possible because it becomes habit for me. But sometimes it might be necessary. Welcome you to our final segment of today's Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Colonel, we're talking about uh, thou shalt not steal. Let's continue looking at this commandment. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, in his notes for Exodus 20.15 says, Thou shalt not steal. This command forbids us to rob ourselves of what we have by sinful spending. Now, there is an aspect of stealing that we probably wouldn't have thought of, or of the use and comfort of it by sinful sparing. In other words, not taking advantage of things that we are entitled to and to rob others by invading our neighbor's rights, taking his goods or house or field forcibly or clandestinely, overreaching in bargains, not restoring what is borrowed or found, withholding just debts, rents, or wages, and, which is worst of all, to rob the public in the coin or revenue or that which is dedicated to the service of religion. To rob the public, in other words, not pay the taxes you legally owe. He says that's the worst. Most of us think that's a minor theft, but he says that's the worst. Or that which is dedicated to the service of religion. In other words, Wesley is saying not giving God what God is due is a form of theft. And whether you believe that you owe God a literal 10% tithe or whether you apply that differently, whatever you believe God is entitled of your, of your wealth, depriving of what he is entitled to, that is a form of theft, according to Wesley. Luther puts it like this in his large catechism, for to steal is nothing else than to get possession of another's property wrongly, which briefly comprehends all kinds of advantage in all sorts of trade to the disadvantage of our neighbor. Now, this is indeed quite a widespread and common vice, but so little regarded and observed that it exceeds all measure, so that if all who are thieves and yet do not wish to be called such were to be hanged on gallows, the world would soon be devastated, and there would be a lack both of executioners and gallows. He's saying, we're all thieves by the broad definition, and therefore he is saying, we all need God's grace. There are several interesting cases in American history in which the courts have referred to the commandment. Roshan versus Iberia Parish School Board. And this was a Florida case in which the court established that theft was a crime of moral turpitude and therefore a basis for firing somebody. And the court had some things mixed up here. The court said Moses, in his Sermon on the Mount, established Ten Commandments that has served the Judeo-Christian community for thousands of years. One of these commandments is, Thou shalt not steal. Well, Moses did not deliver the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did. But I think he had that confused with Moses on Sinai. But at least his basic point was in the right direction. 1928, the Florida Supreme Court, well, 1926 first, the Florida Supreme Court said that the word steal has been pretty thoroughly understood since the Eighth Commandment was brought down from Sinai, or at least since it was translated into English. And two years later, in 1928, the court said, the Eighth Commandment, the Decalogue merely reads, thou shalt not steal. But was it ever doubted that it prohibited larceny of all kinds? Or another case, Oregon versus Jim, the court said, the present case, we hold that 
under Texas law, the crimes described in the statutes are forms of theft. Theft is a synoptic concept. The Eighth Commandment condemns theft without explaining every possible nuance and contrivance in its accomplishment. And I guess there's still many, many more here, but let me just suggest a few thoughts on this. One of them being what Jesus said when in Luke 6.30, he says, Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Jesus here strikes at theft, which is the ultimate act of selfishness, by commanding the opposite. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that theft is the opposite of theft, let's say, is not not stealing. Most of us think not stealing, that's the opposite of theft. No, Jesus is saying the opposite of theft is generosity. That goes beyond just not stealing. That means giving. And in Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. In other words, if we're going to really follow this commandment, we are going to put ourselves in a good financial position so that we can be generous. And this doesn't just say, let him that stole steal no more, rather let him be content with what he have. Rather, let him labor, work with his hands, the thing which is good. And if you do that, Paul says, then you're going to be prosperous and you're going to be able to give to those who are in need. Again, the opposite of theft is not non-theft. The opposite of theft is generosity. So you work so you can provide for yourself, for your family, and for others. Live as though honesty is not even an option. And the more, anytime the thought of stealing something, the thought of not reporting this under tax, the thought of withholding a little bit from the offering plate, the thought of possibly taking something from our employer that isn't ours or not giving them the full measure of work for the day that we're contracted to give. Live as though that's not even an option. As when the thought occurs to you, just say, nope, that's not even on the table. We can't even consider that. Another thing you might do is think back, and if there's money you owe from the past, somebody that loaned you money that you didn't return, or somebody that maybe was generous to you in the past and you feel you should return the favor, contact them. Pay that back. In other words, honesty, a habit. Make honesty a lifestyle. Now again, we have a couple more cases that the Supreme Court has considered here, or that other courts have considered, the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia once ruled that the Republican candidate had been elected, and there was apparently vote fraud here, and the Republican had won by 
three votes, 2,131 votes to 2,128 votes. And certain votes that were illegal were therefore discounted. Judge Dent wrote a concurring opinion. He said, I am aware that there are some people who at least profess to believe that elections, being human institutions, are governed solely by human inclinations and not subject to the supervision or control of that moral code of ethics promulgated by God to the greatest of all human lawgivers from Sinai's hoary summit. This, however, is a great and grievous error, for the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, forbids not only larceny as defined in the criminal code, but also the unjust deprivation of everyone's civil, religious, political, and personal rights of life, liberty, reputation, and property, even though done under the sanction of legal procedure. In other words, he is saying voter fraud is a form of theft. And I'll just say about voter fraud that there are two ways that you can be deprived of your right to vote. One way is by not allowing you to vote. The other way is by canceling out your vote with the vote of an illegal voter. Either way is a form of voter fraud, and as Judge Dent says in Dahl versus Bender, that's a form of theft. And Judge McReynolds, Justice McReynolds on the Supreme Court one time in the Smith Executor versus United States case involving an issue about bondholders and whether they had lost their right to interest. And Justice McReynolds, joined by Justices Sutherland and Butler, three conservative justices of the Supreme Court back in the 1930s, said, the answer ought not to be difficult, where men anxiously uphold the doctrine that a contractual obligation remains binding on the conscience of the sovereign and reverently fix their gaze on the eighth commandment, one of the most important of the commandments given by God.